Royal families may seem like the stuff of fairy tales, but you can appreciate their starring role in Western history next time you visit your favorite museum. So when you go see those incredible paintings and incredible sculpture, really, you can thank a king from centuries past. Coming up, we look at the royal foundations to our modern world. Nearly a hundred years ago, writer Agatha Christie's year-long grand tour took her to the far reaches of the British Commonwealth. These days it would be hard to imagine people embarking on a tour like that. I know they go on long cruises, but they don't usually last that long. And on Bloomsday, you'll find fans of James Joyce's Ulysses reenacting scenes from the novel on the streets of Dublin. Sweeney's Pharmacy is a popular stop. And while he's there, Leopold Bloom buys a barrel of lemon soap. So every visitor who visits us on Bloomsday particularly, they buy the barrel of soap. Enjoy a walking tour of Dublin, royal history, and Agatha Christie's grand tour of the empire. It's just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. One great way to connect with the locals is to speak the language, or at least some of it. Rosetta Stone is a fast, fun way to learn. It's got helpful tools like online video chats with native-speaking teachers. You can take the Rosetta Stone demo or purchase the program at a special discount at rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. Imagine how much fun it would be if Agatha Christie, the queen of mystery writers, wrote about travel. Before she became famous as a mystery writer, she actually spent nearly a year sailing around the world as part of a trade mission to promote the British Empire. We'll find out from her grandson how her far-flung travel tales turn up in her wonderful novels. In the glory days of the British Empire, Dublin was second in importance only to London. A walk around Dublin today shows you the city's elegant Georgian architecture, as well as evidence from 700 years of British rule. We'll get an insider's tour of Dublin in just a bit today on Travel with Rick Steves. The empire that once ruled Ireland is now just a memory, as is the power once enjoyed by a small group of European royal families. And while it's easy for an American to dismiss kings and queens as an extravagant vestige of the past, they've left a lasting mark in the sites we enjoy visiting in Europe today. To help us better understand the importance of royalty in European history and as it applies to our sightseeing, we're joined by Ben Curtis. He teaches political science at Seattle University, and he's the author of The Habsburgs, The History of a Dynasty. Ben, thanks for joining us. I'm glad to be here, Rick. Ben, when you think about the power of a handful of big families in the 19th century, it's hard to imagine the impact they had on every bit of life. And then, after 1918, basically, it's all changed. Explain to us how a few royal families permeated life, and then what happened in World War I. Right. Think about it. In a couple of these states, in like the Habsburg monarchy in Central Europe, in the German Empire, and in Russia, you have families who have been building up their power there for centuries. Hundreds and hundreds of years, they've been founding churches, they've been founding schools, they've been creating bureaucracies, they've been actually creating government and creating armies, and then 1918, they're wiped away. So understand that these families had these incredibly long histories in these places and really did shape economies, cultures, politics, and then because of a few very fateful decisions, in 1914, they were gone. Could you say World War I was caused by royal families refusing to modernize and then World War I actually ended the power of royal families? In many ways, yes. If you look at, zoom right in on the conflict between the Habsburgs and between Serbia in June 1914, and one reason why Austria decided to declare war on Serbia after the Austrian heir to the throne, the Archduke Franz Ferdinand, was assassinated in Sarajevo, is because the Habsburg emperor felt that the pride of his family would be hurt if they didn't actually respond militarily to that uh, provocation. So any royal family worth their salt would not put up with that kind of a provocation. And then you have all this jockeying behind the scenes, and it's actually, what do they call it, the Nicky and the Vili letters going back mm -hmm. and forth. Emperor Nicholas and Kaiser Wilhelm. Yep. Some of them are tied to the Habsburgs. And what was it? Nicholas was in Russia... The, mm -hmm. the, uh, the Romanovs, exactly. Kaiser Wilhelm in Germany, yep. and then you got the Habsburgs. And the Habsburgs are getting their due respect from these Serbs that wanted a little more uh, autonomy. Right. And uh, the Habsburgs are going to teach them a lesson, but the Serbs are related to the Russian Slavs, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so the Russians are mobilizing, and then the Germans are related because they're Germanic with the Habsburgs. Yep. And you got these frantic letters going back and forth between the emperors personal letters. Exactly. And think about how there's not only just these couple big families that rule all of this, but they are so interconnected because 
Wilhelm II in Germany was a cousin of Nicholas II in Russia, and they were both cousins with George V, who was ruling the United Kingdom at the same time. So England is paying attention. Of course. And then yeah. they get right up, to, and it's like, Nicky, Billy, Nicky, don't do this, but right. Billy, I have to, but my cousin, but our, our respect. Yeah. And, and then suddenly, Germany invades France. Mm-hmm. Now that's like, what? Yeah, and why did it happen? And a key aspect of why it happened in relation to this big royal family's picture is because these kings and emperors still saw it as their prerogative. They didn't have to think about whether war was going to be good for the, the average Joe on the street, the peasants, you know, or the shopkeeper. War was about them, right? War was about their family's prestige, their family's power. And so they weren't accountable to the average Joe in the street. And if they wanted to go to war, well, they could mobilize, they could do it. And that's really what happened is the Austrian emperor said, we're going to war. The German emperor said, we're backing them up and we're going to go on for Russia. And of course, the Russian Tsar, the most autocratic of all, he didn't have to listen to anybody. And Russia could go to war for his family's own interests rather than the interests of everybody else. And basically all of these royal families had millions of peasants that had to follow. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you just there was not a notion like today that you could say, well, wait a minute, this war seems illogical to me. Yeah, but that's one reason why they start to crumble then as the wars go on is because people get the idea, wait a second, they're leading us to ruin, right? Whatever stability and prosperity these monarchies may have once provided over the centuries, as World War I goes on, that thing that starts to disappear, and by 1917, 1918, people are saying, you know what, we don't need them anymore. Maybe this is growing pains. Maybe you needed royalty to bring us out of the feudal chaos that followed the fall of Rome just to give some sort of order and, and stability. But then as Europe evolves, uh, you're not going to have people willingly give up power, and then they overreach, and you have them steamrolled by the modern age, 1918. Yeah, absolutely. Our guest on Travel with Rick Steves right now is Ben Curtis. He's an expert in European history and politics. He's also the author of The Habsburgs, The History of a Dynasty, as well as A Traveler's History of Croatia. You know, you shouldn't look at the, the royal families in Europe as totally things of the past or purely kind of nice little museums because in a lot of countries, including Austria, Hungary, but even Spain to a certain extent, even Germany, certainly parts of Russia too, the state apparatus, that's to say the government, the fundaments of it were built by royal families and it still persists today. In a positive way. In a positive way, yeah. yeah. And in fact, I was at um, in the Pantheon in Rome and there is the tomb of the first king of Italy right there from the 1880s or something. Mm-hmm. And and there's actually royalists that meet there, yeah. and they're scheming to bring back the king. I mean, it's kind of fringy, but there's actually people today that want to bring back the royalty. Indeed, and there's still some kind of crazy members of royal families who think they should be in charge again. You know, I used to sleep in a funky bed and breakfast in London called the Ravnagora. Mm-hmm. And the Ravnagora is a rallying cry for the Serbs, kind of like, remember the Alamo, right, exactly. when their royalty was booted. Yeah. And the communists took over, uh, the way I understand it. And the two-bit king, his descendant of Serbia, who wanted to go back on the throne, was holding court in the basement of this bed and breakfast in London called the Ravnagora. And he had these old Serbian guys with their long beards that would hang out there and scheme as if they actually had a hope to go back to the throne in in Belgrade or whatever. It was fascinating that this still exists around Europe today. And one of the crazy things, which I will admit to, in some ways, the monarchies that fell apart were better than what replaced them, and particularly after World War I, when you get the power vacuum in Central Europe where you used to have the Habsburg monarchy, and then after that you get Czechoslovakia, you get a separate Hungary, you get a separate Austria, you get this new Yugoslavia thing, and many of those states succumb all too easily to fascism in the interwar period. And if there were, this is alternative history, but if there were still a strong monarchy there, then perhaps what happened in World War II would never have happened because you would have had somebody else to resist Hitler and Stalin. And you could actually make that apply to today's headlines Mm -hmm. after the Arab Spring and so on, and and countries that used to have stability, and then they weren't democratic, so popular uprisings threw out the reason for the stability, and they couldn't handle their new democracy, and they fall into fragmentation and even worse governments. Right, yeah. I mean, neither you nor I are really a monarchist, but the point of this conversation is to say, you know, monarchies weren't necessarily all bad, and they provided some things that some of the governments are not well, providing right now. there's something more fundamental than democracy called stability, and mm-hmm. maybe that's what monarchies provided back in an age when there would not have been stability. Exactly. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking monarchies and royal families in Europe with Ben Curtis. Ben's a professor of European history and politics at Seattle University. His book is called The Habsburgs, The History of a Dynasty. 
Our email is radio at ricksteves.com, and uh, Tarlock from Perth in Australia has emailed us. And uh, Tarlock writes, I think we're now at a stage in the world where royals are a thing of the past. Yet that makes the past even more important as the history now becomes of much more value. Thus, we have to make sure that the tourism sector keeps that alive through education, as we are nothing without history. Well, that's interesting. So Tarlock's talking about we can learn from history, and as we sightsee, we can learn from the royals. He says they're a thing of the past. I guess the power of royal families is a thing of the past. Today, you do have royal families throughout Europe, but they're generally constitutional monarchs, and they have a ceremonial post. You know, a lot of times I I feel like I wish I had a president who could be the ceremonial guy without having to be the political guy. And that's one rationale for having a king of Norway, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. They're, you know, whether it's the queen of the United Kingdom or the king of Norway, they are conceived are supposed to be national unifiers, right? They right. are ceremonial. They're supposed to stand above political divisions and represent the whole country in a kind of apolitical fashion, and that's not a bad thing necessarily. I think a lot of Scandinavians, arguably the most modern and, and practical and not burdened with the trappings of the past, sort of ironically are the ones with royal families. And a lot of them, modern as they may be, appreciate the value of a monarch in Sweden or in Denmark or exactly. in, in Norway. Ben, you've made a life out of teaching and studying uh, about the royal families of Europe. When we think of all the great art collections, they really are a function of the royal families. Talk to me about a few of your favorite sites that really we wouldn't have without royal families. Think of many of the greatest museums in the world, like the Prado, for example, in, in Madrid, or the Louvre in Paris, or the... The Hermitage in The Hermitage, exactly, in St. Petersburg. The majority of those collections were established by royal families. So when you go see those incredible paintings and incredible sculpture... Really, you can thank a king from centuries past in many times that that's there. For paying the artist originally in a lot of cases. Yeah, for paying the artist to make it or for collecting it because a lot of these uh, kings and queens were greedy for the greatest art treasures of the world and they would go to great lengths. There's a story of one Habsburg emperor who loved a particular painting by Albrecht Dürer, right? So the great German Renaissance artist. And so he paid to have that painting transported upright over the Alps all the way to Prague in the late 1500s because he loved it so much and he wanted it there. A lot of times you find treasures of a long-gone civilization stored in the Vatican or in the Doge's uh, palace or something like this or in some treasury of the Habsburgs. Local people say, well, yeah, we looted it, but had we not looted it, it would have been destroyed today. Nothing exists from that culture. They make a good case. I mean, mean, all that stuff that was looted from Istanbul, it survives because it's in some treasury in Europe. Yeah, exactly. It's true, you know. You don't want to advocate looting, but when you you go to the Hermitage in St. Petersburg, it's a great chance not only to see the art that the Romanovs collected for centuries, but also to get a little glimpse at the way they lived in the incredibly opulent rooms and think, well, yeah, we've moved on from that to the positive in many ways, but it is this great heritage that we can still appreciate. Fascinating. Ben Curtis, thank you so much for giving us an insight in the importance of royal families in Europe and best wishes with your teaching. Thanks so much, Rick. We get a Bloomsday walking tour of Dublin and a look into Agatha Christie's grand tour of the British Empire and how it fed her imagination for her famous mystery stories. That's all just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Support for Travel with Rick Steves comes from Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone believes that knowing even just a little bit of a new language can help take down barriers so your trip can be truly memorable. Helping people learn language for more than 20 years, it's now available on smartphones and tablets. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash ricksteves.
Hello, my name is Lale Surman Aran and I'm from Istanbul, Turkey. And I'd like to teach you a tongue twister in Turkish now. It is Kartal Kalkar Dal Sarkar Dal Sarkar Kartal Kalkar. Eagle flies out, the branch lifts back. Eagle flies in back, the branch hangs down. And it goes as Kartal Kalkar Dal Sarkar Dal Sarkar Kartal Kalkar. Apart from Shakespeare and the Bible, Agatha Christie is said to be the best-selling author in the English language. She wrote dozens of mystery novels and short story collections. And though she died in 1976, a new work of hers was published just a few years ago. The Grand Tour, Around the World with the Queen of Mystery, is a compilation of letters she wrote to her family back in faraway England as she spent nearly a year sailing around the world. It gives us clues into the exotic characters and locales that she would eventually work into her stories when Agatha Christie became a famous mystery writer. As her only heir, Matthew Pritchard oversees Agatha Christie's legacy today. He assembled her correspondence and photos for this peek into her round-the-world travels from 1922. Matthew joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves for a look at his grandmother's grand tour of the British Empire. Matthew, thanks for being here. You're very welcome. When you think about Agatha Christie's grand tour... Exactly what was the grand tour that your grandmother took in 1922? What she set out to do actually was to accompany her husband, my grandfather, who was appointed sort of financial director to a tour which aimed to encourage support for the the grand exhibition that took place in, I think it was 1924, involving all the countries in what was then the British Commonwealth. So this was like a World's Fair or something? A wor- that is exactly what it was, So yes. a 1924 London World's Fair. So she was going around the world in At a place called Crystal Palace. Okay. They set off from London, and they went to start with to South Africa, and then to Australia, New Zealand, Canada, with a stop in Hawaii for my grandmother to learn how to surf. But it, it was a tremendous tour. It took about a year. And I think these days it would be hard to imagine people embarking on a tour like that. I know they go on long cruises, but they don't usually um, last that long. So now she was just a young a young woman at this point. How old was she in 1922? 1922, she would have been 32. Oh, 32. Was she famous? Was she established as a writer at this point? No, I think she'd written two or three books, and mm-hmm. she wrote one or at least the notes for it while she was actually on the tour. So... Although she was she was an author, I don't think she would have been nearly as well-known um, no. now. And probably had no idea of how important she would one day be. And she was just writing letters to her mother just because she wanted to keep her mother clued in. Is that, do you think that's the idea? As we have all discovered since, she was an inveterate writer. Yeah. Uh, so if she wasn't writing books, she was writing letters. And you've compiled these letters. Tell us about the letters that Agatha Christie wrote as a 32-year-old woman in 1922. As a group, they are a a very evocative and sometimes pictorial account of uh, the places that they visited, the situations that they encountered, uh, the people they met, the parties they went to. And the actual words are accompanied by an extraordinary collection of photographs, some of them taken by my grandmother herself Mm. um, and others, of course, by people surrounding them. And I think the important thing about the Grand Tour was the idea that it gives of uh, life in sort of middle to upper class England and the Commonwealth in the 1920s and how people behaved, and in other words, it's social history as well as literary history. So, Matthew, as you were reading through these letters from your grandmother, this was a time when the British Empire, you didn't really think there was anything unnatural about the British people ruling a quarter of the the planet, and uh, Agatha Christie was going on this cruise around the world. Did you capture a sort of an attitude from her that was very uh, British Empire-ish? Very much so. I mean, I think somebody like my grandmother would have... I think found some of the people she met, um, I can remember sort of farmers in Australia whose language my grandmother found quite difficult to understand. Mm. I mean, there weren't so many, I mean, these days there are hundreds, nay, thousands of Australians in England, but there weren't Mm -hmm. then. Her sort of reaction to situations that you can read in the letters is very fresh and, you know, fresh, tolerant, but nonetheless sometimes bemused. 
bemused in a condescending is probably a negative way, but in a we're superior to you kind of way culturally. Yes. I mean, I, I think it was genuinely a foreign tour. I mean, I know everybody mm. on all the way around the tour taught the same language, but mm. um, Australians were very different from New Zealanders who were very different from Canadians yeah, and, yeah. and all that kind of thing. Matthew Pritchard is bringing us a look at the grand tour made by his grandmother, Agatha Christie. It includes personal insights into her introduction to the far reaches of the world as she was part of a British trade delegation back in 1922. She accompanied her first husband by steamship to South Africa, Australia, New Zealand, Hawaii, and Canada, all to promote the upcoming British Empire exhibition. Matthew sorted through her letters and photographs from the trip 90 years to the day after she set sail. He features them in the book, The Grand Tour, Around the World with the Queen of Mystery. When you were reading through these, actually, you you collected these letters, and from that came your book, The Grand Tour, Around the World with the Queen of Mystery. What sort of challenge did you have in taking these letters? Because I would imagine there were missing pieces to the story to put this book together. Well, I think, though I edited it myself, part of the charm of, of the book is that it doesn't pretend to be a complete chronological account of all 12 months of the tour, although... Mm -hmm. We have actually put the letters in chronological order. There are gaps and, you know, days missing and incidents that are described that unfortunately don't have photographs to accompany them. Mm -hmm. But I think when you get to the end, you will get uh, a great picture of uh, what the British Commonwealth was like and mm -hmm. what traveling was like. And I mean, for instance, her only method of communicating with her three-year-old daughter at home was by letter. No emails, no telephones just good old-fashioned letters, which took, what, two or three weeks to get there. Did you get a sense, Matthew, that when you read through these letters that this was a, a great author or a great writer working on her writing skills? Did she enjoy observing and, and collecting these thoughts, or was it just more of a travel log? Well, I certainly think that anybody reading those letters would say to themselves, my goodness me, she's very good at describing what she saw and giving us an, an insight into the character of the people she met. Mm -hmm. um, but, of course, there are no detective stories in the book. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, there are, unfortunately, no murders. But do you think over this course, the better part of a year on the road, that she was developing, getting ideas and finding characters that would later show up in her stories? Well, there's a book um, that she wrote around that time, The Secret Adversary, I think, no, it wasn't. It was called The Man in the Brown Suit. Okay. And all I can tell you without revealing the plot is that the murderer in The Man in the Brown Suit was actually on board the ship with my grandmother. And he is one of the very few characters who is reproduced completely as one character. He, he was called Major Belcher. That's the real character. But that's not his character in the book. So the answer is yes, you know, she was thinking of ideas and uh, learning how to translate them into detective stories all the while she was away. Because you can't be so prolific as Agatha Christie was without having some life experience. And I would imagine this is a very rich and fertile time for her as she was developing her arsenal of scenes and characters and stories. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Matthew Pritchard. Matthew is the only grandson of Agatha Christie. He's written a book called The Grand Tour, Around the World with the Queen of Mystery, which is derived from all of the letters that Agatha Christie wrote from this year-long around-the-world trip uh, that Matthew has edited and published. Matthew, when uh, we think of Agatha Christie, even if you're not a big Agatha Christie fan, you know about the Orient Express. What is the Orient Express, and what's your take on that? The Orient Express used to be a train that left northern France, Calais, I think it was, and it traveled to Venice and then via the Balkans and Eastern Europe and ended up in what used to be Constantinople, but which is now called Istanbul. And my grandmother was fascinated with trains. Indeed, she was fascinated with travel. And I think her trip on this train in the early 1930s was obviously responsible for the book that she wrote shortly after that called Murder on the Orient Express. If any of your listeners ever end up in Istanbul, there is a hotel called the Pira Palace, which has an Agatha Christie bedroom and a very small but evocative little display of Agatha Christie products. I'm not quite sure how genuine those are, but certainly her visiting the hotel is genuine, and her fascination with Istanbul and the East is very genuine. 
I can just imagine, I've been at the Para Palace Hotel in Istanbul, and it's a great little site, but for you, the grandson of Agatha Christie, to drop in there, what was it like for you in Istanbul to visit the hotel room made famous? I, I would imagine they knew who you were, and you got to go behind the glass. Yeah, yeah, they certainly knew who I was. I mean, more good news for your listeners is that the Pera Palace is, is not like it was when my grandmother visited it. It's just received a complete facelift and is now a brilliant hotel as well as an important historical site for Agatha Christie lovers. But the manager of the hotel was very polite, and it was actually, I thought, I see quite a lot of places, believe it or not, which claim to have Agatha Christie rooms and mm-hmm. Agatha Christie sites mm-hmm. and this, that, and the other, where I'm sure she never went to in her life. But mm. at least I know that she really did go to the Piera Palace, and this was very much uh, somewhere where she felt at home. So if you've read all of Agatha Christie's novels and you could go anywhere in the world and visit places that were inspiring to Agatha Christie or or featured in the novels or or were connected with these novels, what are three or four places, Matthew, that you'd recommend uh, Agatha Christie fans to put on their travel wish list? I'm going to give you a cheating answer to that question. What I would love to be able to advise your listeners to do is to go to Syria and Iraq, which were if anywhere in the world, my grandmother's home from home. She was married to an archaeologist, and they went there most years from the early 1930s until the 60s. They fell in love with Syria and Iraq. They had lots of Syrian and Iraqi friends, and it would be such a tragedy for her to Mm. witness the terrible um, events that are going on there now. My step-grandfather was fluent in Arabic, and the the love affair between my grandparents and Arabs of many different denominations was completely mutual. And it is one of the tragedies of my life that I've never been to Syria and Iraq where my grandparents were so happy. And, you know, it sadly, it doesn't look as if any of us are going to be able to go there in the near future. I didn't realize that Syria and Iraq, two of the most tragic places on the planet right now, would have such close connection with Agatha Christie and and, uh, a place that she went many, many times. She wrote a lovely little book called Come Tell Me How You Live, which is a wonderful read. It's not a detective story, but it is autobiographical and contains uh, very evocative passages of Mm. how she felt in, Mm. in Syria and Iraq. And I could recommend that it's a really good little read. It'll only take you four or five hours to read. And uh, this is about her uh, experiences while she was there with her husband on archaeological digs? That's right. And what's the name of the book? Come Tell Me How You Live. Come Tell Me How You Live. That would be a fascinating look at two places that realistically now we are not going to be traveling to. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We are talking with Matthew Pritchard. And Matthew is the only grandson of Agatha Christie. His responsibility is taking care of the heritage of Agatha Christie and all the things that come with that. Uh, uh, Family estate at Greenway in the south of England is now run by the National Trust, and and that would be a very important site to check out. Every September, there's an Agatha Christie uh, International Festival in uh, Torquay, which is in the south of England. And if you're an Agatha Christie fan heading off to England in the fall, uh, that would be uh, a week-long festival that would be well worth checking out. So what is your role now with the heritage of, of Agatha Christie? It's pretty wide-ranging. I mean, I suppose what takes up most of my time is the sort of commercial managing of the property, the worldwide film and TV rights, publishing rights, and all the modern things that emanate from them. That is, so to speak, the business side. But in some ways, the most intriguing side is the sort of heritage and the legacy. At home, I have a coach house behind my house, which contains the Agatha Christie archive, which contains all her notebooks and Mm all sorts of photographs all the way through her life. Amongst other things, apart from being an author, she was a very accomplished photographer, so we have lots of photographs, many of them taken by herself. My life is spent dealing with a person who I think was almost unique in the 20th century, not only being, as you've said, a best-selling author, but having so many accomplishments as well, uh, one of which, incidentally, was being a very charming, accommodating and loving grandmother. Matthew, I was reading about you discovering these tapes that your grandmother dictated for her last memoirs, apparently in the attic of the Greenway House. Can you tell us about that and how that helped you with your work? After my mother sadly died about 10 years ago, it was one of my first duties to go over all the cardboard boxes that were in Greenway, which 
Some of them, you know, held a good deal of rubbish, but sometimes one came across a tremendous historical nugget, and one of them was these uh, tapes of the last third, roughly, of the autobiography that she published, was published just after she died. And that was, I think, particularly poignant because, as most of her fans know, she wasn't very good at giving interviews, so the, there isn't much available of her actual voice. And to have this, you know, 16 or 17 hours of her voice, what 30 years as it then was um, after her death, was a great find. And we use excerpts of it now for various reasons. There's a lovely little piece concerning her invention of Miss Marple mm. and and all those kinds of things. But it was uh, it was a great find. Miss Marple insinuated herself so quietly into my life that I think I hardly noticed her arrival. She had this in common with my grandmother, that although a completely cheerful person, she always expected the worst. Matthew, when, when I think of you having actually known your grandmother as a young boy and then reading through all of these letters that she wrote later as a, as a man who's in charge of taking care of her heritage, what did you learn about your grandmother from these letters that was different from your recollections of her as a little boy? Well, I'm not sure I learned anything that was very different. I think I learned to emphasize certain parts of her character that I knew existed. I mean, mm-hmm. first of all, I suppose, enthusiasm the ability to listen to what other people said. I think she was the best listener I've ever met. Um, And goodness knows in Hmm. the society we live in now, we need listeners, don't we? A good listener. So the most prolific and widely read author in in so many ways was an expert listener. I think that is very thoughtful. And I'm sure there is a considerable connection between the two. And if you think of how successful your grandmother was, how would you sum up her ability to captivate her readers. Just in a nutshell, to close out this interview, how was your grandmother so darn successful at captivating us all in her writing? I would suggest that partly because of the fact that she was an inveterate traveler and an inveterate listener, she learnt almost unconsciously how to communicate with people. She learnt what they enjoyed. She learnt how to entertain them. And she learned never to be anything else other than herself. Mm. And I think the result of this was that her books and all the various adaptations that have been made out of them are just first-class entertainment, and people unwittingly realize that, and that's why they go on reading them. First-class entertainment from an inveterate traveler. What a gift. Matthew Pritchard, thank you so much. I'll look forward to checking out your book, The Grand Tour, Around the World with the Queen of Mystery, and best wishes with your work in keeping the heritage of your grandmother, Agatha Christie, alive and well. Thank you very much. When Agatha Christie set sail on her grand tour, she just missed the first publication of James Joyce's epic tale, Ulysses, just by a couple of weeks. It takes place on a single day in June in Dublin in 1904. Up next... We get a grand tour of the streets of Dublin from hometown guide Joe Darcy. Joe takes your calls about the sites of the Irish capital in just a moment at 877-333-7425. It's Travel with Rick Steves. It can be a grand tour indeed when you have a good companion to take you around the streets of Dublin. The creative tradition of Irish literary greats like Beckett, Yeats, Joyce and Shaw continue on in its youthful arts and music scene to this day. And there's a lot of compelling history at your feet as well. From its 13th century Dublin castle to its role as the second city of the British Empire. Dublin streets have known feast and famine, and they bore witness to the bloody struggle for Irish independence. On a lighter note, each year the city commemorates June 16th as Bloomsday. That's the day the streets of Dublin become the haunt of James Joyce fans as they painstakingly recreate the details of that day, lived by his character Leopold Bloom in Ulysses. Joe Darcy specializes in walking tours of his hometown, and he joins us now for insider tips for seeing the best of Dublin. Joe, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. So Dublin was, at one time, the number two city in the British Empire. It certainly was, particularly in the 18th century. In the 1700s, it really was. a 1700s, there's a period of architecture known as Georgian architecture, and Dublin went through a big, big building boom in the 18th century, and Dublin's prosperous Protestant class. They had a huge amount of money and they built a huge amount of okay. buildings. So when we see the great Georgian architecture, uh, Georgian is 
British for neoclassical. Mm. When you go to Dublin, that was mostly Protestant bigwigs in Dublin representing the British throne. Yes, certainly. The because the, the official of the, of the colony, the official religion in Ireland was Protestantism. Although the vast majority of people were Catholic, we have this phrase called "beyond the pale." Beyond the pale, yeah. It relates to Dublin um, when the Anglo Normans, the precursors to the English, when they arrived and captured the city of Dublin in eleven sixty seven, eleven sixty nine. Beg your pardon. And Dublin became the centre of the English colony of Ireland. And in a very short period, they built castles in and around Dublin up to 30 miles north, 30 miles, 40 miles south and 10, 12 miles to the, to the west. And that became known as the Pale, uh, P-A-L-E. So beyond the Pale. And beyond the Pale was outside the English control. So good luck to you if you venture beyond the beyond Pale. The, absolutely. <laughs> okay, let's go back with our walk through Dublin now. And... To me, the, the center of Dublin would be O'Connell Bridge. Mm-hmm. And uh, you stand on O'Connell Bridge, and what are we going to see? You're the guide. Tell us about the river. Tell us about what we're looking at. When you're standing on O'Connell Bridge, you're standing on the, the River Liffey, which is flowing underneath you. The River Liffey flows in an east-west direction, almost perfectly east-west through the city of Dublin. So it divides Dublin beautifully up into the north side and south side. The north side of Dublin in the early Georgian period was the place where the aristocracy built their houses. And then in around the middle of the 18th century, a man named James Fitzgerald built his house, now called Leinster House, on the south side of the city. And from the time he built his house there, all the, the rich people started to build their houses on the south on side. The south. Okay. And the north side kind of got deserted from the, by the rich people and started to be populated by poorer people. There's a, a working class edge to it. Yeah, yeah, very much so. And in, in years gone by, when Dublin's population was centred in the city, Dublin's population had now spread out into suburbs. But in years gone by, there was a big population living in Dublin city centre. And you were defined by which side of the river you were born on. What's the joke? The Northsiders were called uh, the accused. The accused and the Southsiders were your honour. Your honour. Is that much of yeah. a gap? It's not so much now, but no. when I was growing up. It's pretty rough, rough no. and tumble district, I bet. When yeah, Northsiders were considered rough, uh, less, or sorry, more criminally inclined. A favourite joke was uh, years ago was why would a Southside girl, that's just the well-off girl, why would she go out with a Northsider boy to get her handbag back? I want my handbag back. Just beyond the next bridge, then down from O'Connell Bridge, uh-huh. is a, a wonderful memorial of uh, six or seven figures. They are very tall figures, very tall, skinny figures. And I think what the sculpture has made them tall is to accentuate how thin they were. Ireland has had a long and troubled history, but Without a doubt, the greatest disaster to happen to Ireland was the famine of 1846-1847. Isn't the population of Ireland today even less than it was before the Great Potato Famine? Oh, it's still much less than it was. Like in a third of the population yeah. or something? There's a census of Ireland in 1841 and the population of Ireland was 8 million people. The population of Ireland in the 1901 census, which is the next one we have records for because a lot of records were destroyed, was less than 4 million people. So half? Population halved in, in a short period. There's no other European country, no other Western country, I think, has a population demograph like that, where the population is less than it was 150 years ago. And that's part of the impact Ireland has had on the United States. Hmm. There are more Irish people in the United States today than, than in Ireland. That's very true, yeah. Yeah. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Joe Darcy, and he's a, a tour guide in Dublin, and we're taking a walk through Dublin. And, uh, Joe, if we want to walk from O'Connell Bridge up O'Connell Street, we see a lot of statues that just really tell the story of Irish history. Who are some of the characters we'll meet along that O'Connell Street? Well, the first, the first statue you'll see, it's right beside O'Connell Bridge, is the statue of Daniel O'Connell. He's one of my great heroes of Ireland. Most of the heroes of Ireland are soldiers who have died fighting for Ireland. Yeah? But Daniel O'Connell is one of my great heroes because he lived for Ireland. He was a politician in the early 19th century who, through peaceful means and through organising the Catholics of Ireland into a major sort of block. They didn't have any votes in Ireland. Catholics did not have the vote. But he organised a series of mass monster meetings. So monster meetings. Yeah. Tens of thousands of people. This was Before they had amplified uh, voice you know, speakers. Yeah, and this was very much like the Velvet Revolution that went on in Eastern European countries at the yeah. fall of the Soviet Union. Yeah. He, Daniel O'Connell was doing this in the 1820s. You'd also come upon the general post office and. And this is, uh, to a lot of people, they go, well, it's the post office, but this is near and dear to the Irish soul. The general post office is one of the most iconic buildings, not just in Dublin, but in Ireland. Why so? Um, well, Ireland has, has been a colony of England for a long, long time, 700 years. There's been many, many rebellions right throughout that time. 
And the most iconic of all the rebellions was the rebellion of 1916, which took place mostly in Dublin. On the morning of Easter Monday in 1916, a small group of Irish rebels captured the GPO, the General Post Office, and declared an Irish independent republic. The rebellion was doomed to failure in terms of military because they didn't have any numbers. They were easily going to get beaten. But what their intention was and what they succeeded in doing was to reinvigorate the demand by Irish people for their own nationhood again. They had almost no chance of winning, but oh, they, they had stoked the spirit oh, of the Irish It's not just people. almost no chance. They had zero so chance of winning. So this was worse than the Alamo in America, probably. <laughs> Actually, very much like the Alamo. It seems yeah. like an Alamo. I, we could I, relate to the Alamo. Yeah, they had no hope of victory either. Yeah, now, yeah. nearby, there used to be a statue of the great British hero, Lord Nelson. Lord Nelson's column, Nelson's pillar, it was called. I think it was built around 1820 or something like that. You could walk up Nelson's Pillar in an internal stairway. I remember doing uh-huh. it as a child for three uh-huh. pence, which was a lot of money. I could buy a lot of toffees for three pence. <laughs> but I did it once. And in 1966, on the 50th anniversary of the 1960 rebellion... So that's 50 years after the, 50 years, uh, yeah. the General Post Office. The Irish Republican time. Army put a bomb in the middle of Nelson's Pillar and knocked down from about halfway down, yeah. Blew it up. Blew it up, yeah. What stands there today? It was replaced by a statue of the River Goddess, the goddess of the river Liffey, her name was Anna Livia. I loved Anna Livia's statue. She was a reclining figure. She must have been about 18, 20 foot long, surrounded by a fountain of water. And most Dublin people loved her there. Quite often people would put soap washing up liquid into the fountain and she'd be surrounded by suds. And she was known affectionately as the floozy in the jacuzzi. <laughs> when, the, when the year 2000 was coming around, a lot of European cities, I don't know about American cities, a lot of European cities were building, doing projects to commemorate the, the, the new millennium. Right. So there was a lot of designs put in for a new monument on the site of the former Nelson's Pillar. The winning project was a 110 metre high metal spire. It's called the Monument of Light. And this um, is just like a stainless steel spike. Stainless steel spike. Most people know it as the spike. It's just like a big flagpole without yeah. a flag on it. Yeah, that's it, yeah. Any other nicknames? It's the spire, it's the needle. The stiletto in the ghetto? The stiletto in the ghetto is its most popular nickname, yeah. Uh, just across the road from the stiletto in the ghetto is a statue of James Joyce on a street called North Earl Street. Uh-huh. And he's a typical James Joyce pose. He has his walking stick out and he's known as the dickwood stick. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Joe Darcy. We're walking through Dublin. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Cheryl's calling in from Peachtree City in Georgia. Cheryl, thanks for your call. Hello. Hi. So I'm going to be visiting Dublin on a cruise, and I'm going to have a limited amount of time. We're just going to be there for about 12 hours. So I was wondering if you could tell me some of the things that I should, I can't miss during that time and maybe something that's off the beaten path. Uh, well, one of the things, hi, it's Joe here. One of the things that you, you shouldn't miss is the Book of Kells, which is not the oldest manuscript book made in Ireland, but the, the most important. It's famous for the calligraphy and the incredible artwork that's in it. That's on permanent display in Trinity College, right in the heart of Dublin. My advice would be, if you're on a cruise ship, there's probably going to be lots of buses visiting Trinity College. They normally visit in the morning hours, so don't go there in the morning if you're going there on your own arguably the most beautiful medieval art from the Dark Ages in Europe, the uh, illuminated manuscripts on the Book of Kells. Absolutely, yeah. A reminder that Ireland was a real yeah. bright spot in Europe when, when the rest of Europe was in what mm. we call the Dark Ages. So as well as Trinity College, I would say that's, do that in late afternoon. But before that, perhaps go up, take a walk up to Dublin Castle, the grounds of Dublin Castle. A lot of people get disappointed when they see Dublin Castle because they're expecting the medieval castle, but Dublin Castle was destroyed by an accidental fire towards the end of the 17th century, and it's a French-style building now, but it's a magnificent building. But it's it has a centre of huge, government, really. It's it's a cent- it was the centre of government of the British co- of the right. colony of Ireland, yeah. Now, one thing I'd recommend, uh, Cheryl, is to just take advantage of all the wonderful guides in Dublin. I mean, Joe's one of them, but there's lots of good guides that give walking, historic walking tours. They take an hour and a half or so, and Students do it at Trinity College, and then uh, guides meet you at different uh, meeting points around Dublin, and they'll give you a, a good two-hour historical walk. Absolutely, yeah. Have Great. fun, Cheryl, on your trip. Thank you very much. You bet. And Stephen's calling in from Cudahy in Wisconsin. Stephen, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. In 2013, my wife and I were in Dublin, and we happened to be there for Bloomsday, June 16th, and we took a couple of guided James Joyce walks, we went to Davy Burns Pub for lunch. We had the traditional gorgonzola cheese sandwich and a glass of burgundy. 
And for anybody who has any interest in Dublin or Irish literature, I, this should be a pilgrimage. Joe just gave you a thumbs up that doesn't show very well on the radio, but he's all if, for what you just said. If, if you were having a gorgonzola cheese sandwich in Davy Burns on Bloomsday 2013, I might have been there at the same time. <laughs> I, I, was, I was the guy dressed in, well, there was thousands of people dressed, but I had a lovely bowler hat on. I, ha- I have my Bloomsday outfit, and I, I sincerely hope if you did Davy Burns on your pilgrimage that you went to a place called Swenny's. Swenny's Pharmacy is uh, on Lincoln Place in Dublin and that's one of my favourite places in Dublin and if you're looking for something different to do in Dublin visit Swenny's Pharmacy not just on Bloomsday. Now what's so good about this pharmacy? Swenny's Pharmacy was a, a pharmacy built in 1845, 1850 um, so it's a Victorian pharmacy and the pharmacy has been preserved one of my colleagues in Swenny's I, I say one of my colleagues in Swenny's because I'm a director of FW Swenny Company Limited which is a charity which looks after the shop it's a preserved Victorian pharmacy, but what makes it on the Joyce Trail is in Chapter 5 of James Joyce's Ulysses' classic book about Dublin on the 16th of June, 1904. Leopold Bloom, around 10.30 in the morning, goes into Swenny's Pharmacy. And while he's in Swenny's Pharmacy, he's looking around, he's describing the bottles and the jars on the shelves, probably still there today. It's just, it's just an incredibly preserved building. And while he's there, Leopold Bloom buys a bar of lemon soap. So every visitor who visits us on Bloomsday particularly, they buy the bar of soap. It's not just on Bloomsday. Swenny's Pharmacy is open every day. It's a little gem in Dublin. It only holds about 20 people if they're all seated in there. Okay. But we sit people in there and we read James Joyce out aloud. It's Beautiful. on every day between one o'clock and two o'clock. There's a story read or a part of a book. But if you go in there with a group of people outside those hours, they'll read a story for you anyway. So now for those of us who are not uh, that literate to have read Ulysses, what is Bloomsday? Bloomsday is the 16th of June. James Joyce's most famous novel is Ulysses, which is about one day in Dublin. And the day he chose was the 16th of June, 1904, which is the day that he went out with a girl named Nora Barnacle for the first time. That was their first date. They eventually eloped a few months later. So the city celebrates James Joyce and his literary heritage every June 16th. Every June 16th is now known as Bloomsday and we dress up in the clothes of the period and we follow the roots of both Leopold Bloom and a guy named Stephen Dedalus as they're walking backwards and forwards across Dublin on the 16th of June, nineteen hundred. Stephen, uh, w- would you recommend being in Dublin on, on Bloomsday? I would and my wife and I are going to be there again this year for Bloomsday and we hope we can meet Joe. And what do you look forward to doing other than meeting Joe on Bloomsday? There's all kinds of festivities. There's concerts, there's walks, there's just hanging out in the pubs. So the whole city is alive. Joe, what are some, a couple of other favorite uh, hidden treats in Dublin that we might, we might want to be aware of? The Marsh Library is Ireland's oldest public library. It's a 300-year-old library right beside St. Patrick's Cathedral. So if you're a tourist in Dublin, the likelihood is you're going to go along to St. Patrick's Cathedral right. at some stage. And just a little bit further on, I'm talking 50, 60 yards, is a Marsh Library. And the library has been preserved as it was built 300 years ago. So a 300-year-old library. Those are wonderful yeah. all over Europe when you find them. And, and what's one more? Just a little bit outside Dublin city centre is a place called the Casino in Marino. And it is an incredibly unique work of Georgian architecture from the late 18th century. It is a magnificent building. On the outside, it looks like a Grecian temple Hmm. with huge windows, a massive front door, and it looks for all the world like it's going to be one room, one big hall inside. And this would have been back from the days when Ireland was not chafing at British rule, but at least Dublin was embracing it and and benefiting from it, if you were a local Dublin was embracing it. There was a man named James Caulfield who uh, who had inherited a large fortune he went off on a grand tour of Europe when he was 20 years of age and he came back with wonderful ideas of bringing classic architecture and classic art to Dublin and he built the Casino in Marino. Stephen, thanks for your call. Thanks, Rick. You bet. Our guide, Joe Darcy, leads private walking tours of his hometown Dublin. His website is darcysdublinwalks.com and that's D-A-R-C-Y-S with no apostrophe. And today we've been walking through Dublin and, and uh, Joe, let's just finish with Temple Bar because that's just sort of the trendy, tacky, touristy, full of hen parties and stag parties, uh, beer drinking zone, but you can't miss it when you're in Dublin. How can we approach and enjoy Temple Bar? Well, you should walk through Temple Bar during the day because the cobble streets that you're walking on are 17th century streetscape that you're walking on. Yes, it is a little bit tacky. It's a bit of a tourist trap, but it's extremely colorful. 
And there's also the music pub walk and the literary pub crawl. Oh, yeah. From there. Yeah. And they're wonderful experiences because you mm. go from pub to pub learning about the music or the literature, depending yeah. on your taste. And Temple Bar in Dublin was a thriving area in the 18th century. And it was full of, uh, as well as taverns and bars, it was full of theatres, including one called the Smock Alley Theatre, which has been restored now. And that was the first theatre to be built in the British Isles after the restoration of the monarchy in Britain in the mid-17th century. So much history. Mm, so much. Now, when people go to Ireland, they always, uh, when you order a beer, you get a Guinness. Yeah, if you say, can I have a pint, please, then the barman assumes you mean a pint of Guinness. That's in Dublin, now. In Dublin, of course, yeah. Now, if you want the most scenic pint of Guinness, uh, they say it doesn't travel very well. And uh, if you want to get it right from the birthplace with oh, a good view, where would you go? The Guinness Storehouse, yeah. It gets very, very crowded during the summer months, mm-hmm. and maybe to go along towards the end of the day there. Yeah. But you have, when you go through the Guinness Museum, but you finish up on the bar at the top of the store. The, the Gravity store, Bar. It's called the Gravity Bar, and it has a wonderful view this around is like the almost view like 360. This the oh, best yeah, view yeah. in the city, I think, and Absolutely. you got a nice beer there, and everybody's in a good mood, and if, if you're kind of a person that enjoys a brewery tour, it's a nice yes. way to cap it off. <laughs> good evening, everybody. Good evening. You're very, very welcome to the Dublin Literary Pub Crawl. So, Joe, let's just finish. We've walked all around town. We had our, our Guinness up on top of the Gravity Bar. Take us to one last stop. In the late afternoon or early evening, Grafton Street is uh, a shopping street on the, the south side of the city. It's been a pedestrian street since the 1980s. It feels like a pedestrian shopping mall. It's, it's a pedestrian shopping mall, place, yeah. Yeah. But it's, It has a huge, large department stores, but it has a lot of small shops as well. And what Grafton Street is most famous for is for the street entertainment. We refer to street entertainers as buskers and the art of busking, B-U-S-K-I-N-G. Yeah. Sometimes my American visitors don't know that word. You know? I love that word, yeah. busking. busking. And there's yeah. great buskers on yeah. Grafton Street. And what I found, unlike anywhere else, is, of course, you've got street musicians, but you also have street poets. Street poets as well, yeah. Great opportunity to feel the pulse of Dublin. Yes. Joe Darcy, thanks so much for your peek at a, at a beautiful city. Thank you. We'll see you there. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick and Isaac Kaplan-Wilner. We get technical help from Andrew Wakeling and Kate Mulhern-Graham, and our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Support for Travel with Rick Steves comes from Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone believes that an adventurous spirit and some basic language skills make all the difference when connecting with someone from another culture. Now available as a smartphone and tablet app. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. His classic, Europe Through the Back Door, teaches the skills of smart travel. At Rick Steves' online travel store, you'll also find guidebooks for London, England, Great Britain, Scotland, and Ireland. To learn more about Rick's guidebooks for this region and beyond, visit the travel store at ricksteves.com.